Everybody would take their copy of God's Word, turn to Genesis 11. I think most everybody's probably already there, considering it's pretty easy to track where I'm going next whenever I'm teaching or preaching. Um, let's go ahead and seek the Lord's face in prayer before we get started because of kind of the way that this is going to flow tonight. Uh, this is probably the best way to do it. So let's, Father God, we again are grateful for this time to come together as brothers and sisters in Christ to study your Word. I pray that you would give us ears to hear, um, give us a greater understanding of what you are, are showing us and telling us in your word this evening. God, again, we come to one of these uh, passages, uh, genealogy passage. Um, we've already come to several of those, and God, I pray that you would show us the truths that are to be mined out uh, from this genealogy and this, this line of Shem as we look at it tonight. God, I ask you would watch over us, Lord, that you would be with those who couldn't be with us tonight, that you would lead God and protect us this evening. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So as mentioned, and if you're familiar with the text of where we are, we spent some time on the, the long generation genealogy in Genesis 10 a couple of weeks ago, and then Tower of Bible last week, and so again we find ourselves in another genealogy, and I don't think we'll be going through one again for, for a little while. As I shared a couple of weeks ago, that when we get to a genealogy, oftentimes, even for a mature believer, we kind of treat them like flyover texts sometimes, right? We just breeze through them, and we may, if we see a name that we recognize, we might stop for a second, and then, but then we just kind of fly through them. And, um, our last study in Genesis 10, you'll remember, came with a couple of take-home maps. We studied those where the three sons of Noah, where, where they went to, where their descendants settled at, and... I've actually had several of you guys come to me after that study and really talk about how much you kept thinking about it and, and how interesting it was to you. So that that was wonderful to hear. It, it sparked an interest, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. Um, we saw from that which son we probably came from, if you understand what your heritage is. You know, if you're of European heritage or whatever heritage you might be from, you, you kind of laid that out, and we're always kind of interested in our own ancestry, I know. We also talked about how the people of Ham went to Africa, and then we talked about how the, the curse wasn't on Ham, it was on Canaan, but how throughout history people try to use that excuse of the curse of Ham, even though there wasn't a curse of Ham, it was on Canaan, uh, for all kinds of wrongdoings done to people of a darker skin than us because they said the curse of Ham, and they can trace that back and try to defend it, although it's a straw man argument at best. So hopefully tonight you find this genealogy study just as interesting, but it's different. There are some clear differences and distinctions in this study, uh, not just in the study itself, but in the approach of it, the delivery of it, but more importantly, the purpose of this genealogy. Chapter 12 is the chapter we'll get to, Lord willing, if we complete 11 tonight, next week. And I've shared with you all in the past that when we get to Genesis 12, that's when the story of Abraham comes to light. And from there to the end, we follow the patriarchs. And we, we, we see this pointing towards um, the nation of Israel and the promises that God made in Genesis 3 after the fall about that seed. We really start seeing that come to fruition. But really, if you think about it, We've been following that promise since Genesis 3 through everything that's happened up to this point, how he's preserved the line, the line that came through Noah um, and then his three sons. When we get to Abraham, things are going to slow down a little bit and get a little bit more condensed. Um, 
But we see that promise continuing, the promise through Abraham. To, to get there, though, we need to understand the connection from Shem, from Noah to Shem to Abraham. And I'll say this on the front end. You may or, not remember, may or may not remember when we talked about the, the generations from, from Adam to Noah being ten generations. Likewise, there's ten generations from Shem to Abraham. Anyway, that said, let's read these first 10 through 26, because then we have a little bit of a paragraph break or a break in maybe some of your scriptures. And we'll, we'll talk about these verses, and then, like I said, Lord willing, we'll cover the last part of this. The generations of Shem, starting in verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and became the father of Arphashad two years after the flood. And Shem lived 500 years after he became the father of Arphashad, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. And Arphashad lived 35 years and became the father of Shelah. And Arphashad lived 403 years after he became the father of Shelah, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. And Shelah lived 30 years and became the father of Eber. We've talked about Eber already. And Shelah lived 403 years after he became the father of Eber, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. And Eber lived 34 years and became the father of Peleg. And Eber lived 430 years after he became the father of Peleg, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. And Peleg lived 30 years and became the father of Ryu. And Peleg lived 209 years after he became the father of Ryu, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. And Ryu lived 32 years and became the father of Sarag. And Ryu lived 207 years after he became the father of Sarag, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. And Sarag lived 30 years and became the father of Nahor. And Sarag lived 200 years after he became the father of Nahor, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and became the father of Terah. And Nahor lived 119 years after he became the father of Terah, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. And Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, just reading through it out loud, it's easy to see how these are flyover verses sometimes, right? I mean, it's, it's just, it's hard. what am I supposed to grasp here? What am I supposed to get here? What am I supposed to pull out of this? And that's understandable. This is the second genealogy of Shem. You remember we saw a genealogy of Shem a couple of weeks ago also in Genesis 10, along with the other two sons of Noah, Japheth and Ham. Japheth and Ham don't get this second treatment. Shem does. There's purpose, there's reason behind it. This is the line of the promise. This is the line from where we will see the patriarchal fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, David, eventually leading to the Messiah. This is the line of promise. This is the line of election. We want to use that term right here. This is that line. Promise all the way back in Genesis 3. So at the cursing of Canaan and the blessing of Shem we, and Shem and Japheth, we looked at something. We get an indication of this back in Genesis 9 when that happened. Whenever Ham comes in and sees his father laying drunk and naked... <coughs> And comes out, we remember there was a curse put on Canaan, and there was something said to Ham and Japheth, too, I mean, Shem and Japheth, too. So let me read that again, Genesis 9, 26. Well, I might as well read the curse as well, verse 25. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. Verse 26, and he said, now this is Noah, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. You see a little bit of a connection now? We didn't explore it deeply there, but Japheth um, 
from Russia probably over into the Americas and all the way down, that's the line of Japheth, all the way back over to Western Europe. I mean, he enlarged, God enlarged Japheth, just like what's said there. And who does he say the God, that God would be with? Shem. And that's the line of the promise that we see coming to fruition here. After the, all of these genealogies, you see the basis of the system that has existed for centuries throughout all of Eastern and Western Europe, the primogeniture, the first son is the named one. And in English inheritance and French and German, the first son, if there's a title, if there are lands, it goes to the first son, and the others are almost insignificant. The way these are written, except for two people, except for two people, Shem wasn't the first, Abraham wasn't the first. We're going to explain how we know that Abraham wasn't the first in just a second. Yeah, they're both the third. I'm sorry, not Shem wasn't the third, Abraham was the third. Where Europe law came from. Not, no, he wasn't. Abram, Abraham was probably the third. We don't know that for sure. Though. Shem listed first, but when you say them, but I don't think you That's the point of this text. Who's listed first? They're the son of importance. They're the son of promise. They're the son to pay attention to. Because he's the one that the line comes through. We'll look at the Abraham thing in just a minute because that can be confusing. Because when you read it, it almost looks like were they triplets? Because it says at 70 years old, he became the father of these three boys, but that's not what happened. We'll we'll get to that maybe. Time allows. I think we will because this is in the first set of verses. This is the line Jesus' parents would come through. In Luke, we see the genealogy of um, Joseph. And let me... Just touch on a couple of verses there. Luke 3, and I think we touched on these a few weeks ago. Pick up around verse 33. I'm going to pick up there. Now this starts with Joseph and it goes back, all the way back. Verse 33 is where I'm going to start at, but it really starts in verse 23. And it goes all the way back. Verse 33 says this, The son of Amenadab, the son of Admin, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah. So there where we get the line from the tribe of Judah, he, that's the, of the 12 tribes, that's the tribe that the line continued through. Verse 34, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. And Terah, the son of Nahor, Sarah, Reu, Peleg, Heber, Shelan. It goes all the way back to verse 38, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. The line drawn through Joseph's line, and we're, we're looking at a piece of that, kind of pulled out of that genealogy that we read, is where we're at tonight. So let's look at the text again, because I've already got a couple of questions that it sounds like we need to get to for sure. These are the generations, it's somewhat of a f- formula to preface the genealogy that's coming, right? We've seen that elsewhere. These are the generations of... You may even have a title at the top of the paragraph or at the top of these verses that say something like that. This, the generations of, or, or etc. The genealogy of Shem in chapter 10 is broad and expansive, whereas this one sticks with one particular branch of his family line. His third son, here's where I was getting the third son thing at, Marty. His third son, Arphashad, not the firstborn of Shem. He's the third son. And that's where this line comes from. 
where this line goes through. This is the line from which leads us from Abraham to the Messiah, or leads us from Shem to the Messiah. So at one point, as I'm writing my notes out, I thought, I'm going to read back through this again. I'm not going to do that. We just read through it. But there's some things I want to point out in the way that this genealogy is laid out compared to the other ones we've looked at. Okay? The other ones we've looked at have been the genealogy leading from Adam to Noah, then the one two weeks ago that, that spoke of the line Ham, Shem, Shem, and Japheth and how they spread out. Three things I want to point out here. One of them may be fairly obvious, maybe two of them, but the third one may not be initially. So what's one thing that jumps out? They're listing years, they're listing when they're having children, they're listing how long they live. These numbers are dropping pretty quick. You notice that? They're not living nearly as long anymore. Why is that? Sin. The, just the progression of sin is one thing. There's another thing, too, though. What else changed at the flood? The atmosphere changed drastically, right? The whole hydrological cycle, everything changed. Uh, the atmosphere, climate, all that stuff changed at that time. So lifespans were shortened. They were marrying and having children much younger. Did y'all catch that too? I mean, early on we read they weren't having children until they were centuries old. They're having children in their 20s and 30s now. Why do you think that is? I don't have a good theological answer for that one like I did the last one. I think it has to do with the, ta- with the, with the lifespans being shortened, really, more than anything else. That's just me making an educated guess more than anything else, really. If you're living to be six, seven, eight hundred years old, you know, you can put off kids a little bit longer than if you're not living as long. I don't think it's a choice. I think it was just the nature of man changed. You know, you know, that and it perhaps a way in which God changed the way that he, he, well, the way that he blessed opening the womb earlier. Because it's not like they didn't have marital relations for four and five hundred years before a child was born. God's the God of the womb, too. Very well could be that he did opening wombs earlier because of the lifespans. The third one is this point I want to make. The genealogy of Genesis 5, which is leading us up to the flood, and every one of those, it said they lived X amount of years and they died. Remember, we noticed that pretty heavily, and they died, and they died, and they died, and they died. This doesn't say that. Is there any significance to that you can think of? But this one doesn't say it in that way. Well, what is that leading to? What is that genealogy pointing us to? Bringing us up to God's judgment, right? And the death that was about to spread. What is this genealogy leading us to? Christ. Life. Everlasting life. I think there's something that... I wouldn't stand up and beat the drum on it too heavy, but I think there's something to that. So this genealogy leads us to Abraham, eventually to the Messiah. This is the genealogy of life and the fulfillment of the promise. Now, they died. I mean, they, they died, right? It says they lived X amount of more years, but the focus isn't on their death. The focus is on how much longer they lived. Make sense? So to put it in historical reference and to make it traceable, we see the addition of something in that first verse too, right? At the outset, we see two years after the flood. Now, from a historical standpoint, any of you folks that are history nerds like I am, and I try to tell Claire as she goes to history class, dates are extremely important. What I told her, one of the hardest things about history class is memorizing these dates. Of when they, y'all remember from school too, right? This is the year that this happened and that happened and et cetera. But it's so we have a traceable 
line that we can draw, timeline we can draw, and connections we can make. Remember last week we talked about how we can kind of tell when the Tower of Babel happened because of this right here, important to Peleg, who said that's whenever the nations were dispersed. It would have been about 101 years. But there's some other reasoning for this timeline that we can pick up on here too. 101 after. After the flood. Within a century. Yeah. The, the last entry here is different too. When you look at... Terra, everybody else is just talking about one son that was born, right? All these other ones are talking about just the one son, the one son, the one son, the one son. When you get to the very last entry, verse 26, Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. There's a reason to that for that, too. It's a little different there. Uh, isn't that reminiscent of Noah also, though, and his three sons? But we're going to touch on a lot of aspects of that. A couple of other important comments to make is the importance of this timeline. Um, have you ever heard Christians, or maybe you've thought this yourself, talk about these major events in Scripture happening about every 2,000 years? The flood was a little more than 1,600 years ago. People will say, maybe you've said it, maybe I've said it, well, just under 2,000 years, God flooded the earth. Roughly 2,000 years after that, the Messiah was born. So the hope is 2,000 years from that, Christ will return, right? That's how a lot of people are thinking. Well, Christians aren't the only ones that think about things that way and the preciseness of these dates. The Jews, close to the intertestamental period, the 400 years of silence from Malachi to Matthew, they had these groups, I hesitate to say think tanks. They were schools where they were learning Scripture and they were studying Scripture deeply. And one of these groups is called um, the School of Elijah or something. They had all these little <laughs> schools of thought. And there, you ever heard of the um, what's it, the Midrash Rabbah? They penned much of that. Their study and their thought using these timelines brought them to this conclusion. You're going to find this interesting if you've never heard this before. They said this: two thousand years with the Torah. I'm sorry, two thousand years without the Torah. Then two thousand years with the Torah, and then two thousand years in Messianic times. So what do they say when they say 2,000 years without the Torah? Law hadn't been given. 2,000 years of human existence before the law was given. Then they say 2,000 years with the law. <coughs> then they said there would be 2,000 years of the time of the Messiah. This is before Christ. They got the first two pretty, pretty good. And then the Messiah came at about that 4,000-year mark. Prior to Christ's coming. So in their mindset, they were looking for Messianic times to start around the time that Christ was born. And they just did it by looking at these genealogies and figuring out these dates and stuff the way that they were laid out. They did the same math that we're doing 2,500 years after they did it. So the Messiah did come at that mark. So back to this portion of scripture now. The, the, the names on this list are connected geographically with a region in northwest Mesopotamia largely. What else? We still do this today, actually. Ancient cities, and still some cities today, are named after people oftentimes, right? I mean, we still do it today. Um, there are these cities that have found that carry the names of many of these men that we see listed in this genealogy from that region. Archaeology and history tells us that. 
ancient cities found with names of some of these people we just read off. Or some kind of iteration of that name, some kind of, you know, little shift of the name here or there. Some examples of those. We know there's an ancient city in um, Haran, the region of Haran, with the name Nahor. We just read that name twice. Look at verses 22 through 26. And Sarah lived 30 years and became the father of Nahor. And Sarah lived 200 years after he became the father of Nahor, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years became the father of Terah. So Nahor was Terah's father. Nahor lived 119 years after he became the father of Terah, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. Terah lived 70 years, became the father of who? Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So he named his son after his dad. Probably indicative of him being the firstborn, too. More often than not, that's what would happen if you name him after, you know, a descendant is going to be the firstborn child. Neharum appears. I don't know what you mean by. I don't either. Hey Siri, what is 30 years McEnroe father nor? Quiet, Yeah, really. <laughs> Media volume set to 0%. Yeah, that's what I need to get back to. Turn the volume all the way down. <laughs> So there's also a record of a place called Serugai. It's a derivative of Sereg, as we looked at. Ancient Assyrian texts speak of Til Tahuri, and Hebrew scholars say that's just an iteration of Terah. In this area, you have these names that align up with what we just read in the genealogy, ancient historical cities. So the settings of Mesopotamia, now that's important to this overall narrative that, that... something I'm going to tell you that you don't read in the text here. You've got to kind of pull it from other places. And we're going to touch on a couple of them. It's important to the overall story of Abraham, though. So we're going to touch on some of it tonight, even though we won't get to it till later on. Well, some of it we won't get to at all because it's not in Genesis at all. Is the fact that this isn't a line of righteous, God-fearing men. We didn't just read through a list of nine fellows that are righteous, God-fearing, people we think of in the line of Noah and Abraham. You might think, well, you sure are trying to speculate a lot about what we just read from that. Well, I think y'all know me well enough to know I'm going to back that up here in just a second, at least with a couple of these individuals. Paganism was rampant in the world. Within 100 years, the Tower of Babel was being built, okay, after the flood. And there are people, every, all the folks that were on the, on the ark were still alive when that happened. Every one of them were, or all the men were, we know. I shouldn't say all of them. We know that all the men were. So Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, who witnessed the flood, who were on the ark and watched the whole world get wiped out, were still alive when they're building the Tower of Babel. Now, paganism took off pretty quick. It always does. Idolatry takes off quick. Man is a rebel at heart. We're all born wicked. God must do a work in us. Except that God intervened, man would remain a rebel shaking their fist at God. So in the midst of paganism, idolatry, and rebellion of man, God is faithful, though, to keep his promise and provision, and he will always preserve a remnant. Paul talks about the same thing, about the tree being cut down, but the roots remain. God always keeps a remnant. The promise in the garden of the promised seed will be fulfilled because God cannot lie. So we've basically been tracking that story of promise and redemption from the garden. That has not changed our whole thread this whole time. 
And it continues, of course, to the Lord returns. So I mentioned paganism in the family line, and I, I debated on bringing this up to y'all tonight because we're going to be talking about Abraham for a while. But I think it helps the context before we get to Abram's life to look at one or two little things right quick. So if y'all would bear with me. We know that Abram's immediate family were pagans. They were not God worshipers. Joshua 24, verses 1 through 3. This is he's getting ready to bring him into the promised land. Right, remember we, Moses wasn't allowed to do it. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. And he called for the elders of Israel and for their, and for their heads and their judges and their officers, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. Joshua's telling the people that they're about to come into the promised land. Abraham's father was a pagan and his family was pagans. So it's not speculation on my part. It just doesn't tell us that in the genealogy. Joshua tells us about that through the inspiration of the Spirit. That gives us a little more understanding to why God called Abraham out from the land, why God called Abraham out from his family and tells him to leave them all behind. Not just move into this other land, but to remove him from that pagan land and that pagan people. Remember Stephen's sermon from Acts 7, the one that got him killed? Remember what he's doing in there? He's, he's coming down hard on the Jewish people, the Hebrews that are there, right? He says this in Acts 7, verse 2 through 4. And he said, this is Stephen, Stephen speaking, Hear me, brothers and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. We're going to come to that back to that in a minute. That's before he left Ur. And said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him move to this country in which you are now living. Much of this text is driving us to verse 26, so... Without jumping, walking through every single one of these people group, peoples again in verses 10 through 26. Let's just go jump down to verse 26. Look at what it says. And Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, something's unique there. All these other people were actually having children earlier. He's, he's, he's kind of the exception of having children more closer to the ages that we are accustomed to in some of the older genealogy laws. I, I don't know the why behind that. I saw some speculation that that might explain something to do with Abraham and Sarah having her being barren, which doesn't make any sense because she's not from him. Abraham's from him. And it said Sarah's womb was barren. It wasn't Abraham. So anyway, um, this is not saying he had all three of them at 70 years old. You might say, brother, you sound like you're extrapolating something from the text again that's not there. Well, we're going to go somewhere else to prove that. But, it, but what it's saying here is he became a father at 70, right? He first became a father at 70. Abraham wasn't born until 60 years later. Now, you don't see that in the text right there either, do you? How do we know that? Well, look down at verse 32 in the same chapter. 
And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Okay, we know how old Terah was, or Terah was when he died. We know when he started having children. That still doesn't close the loop of the comment I just made of 60 years, though, right? It still doesn't do that, which would mean Terah would have been 130 when Abraham was born. In chapter 12, verse 4, read that. So Abram went forth as Yahweh had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. See where I'm going with this now? You can do the, back, the backwards math pretty quickly here, or do a little subtraction and find out. If he died at 205, then you can start backing it up. After his father died, he left. That's what Acts 7-4 said also, remember? He didn't leave until his father died. So if his father died at 205 and he was 75, then he was born when his father was 130. See where that's coming from? So Abram wasn't the firstborn. But listed first here just like Shem was due to his importance. Everybody tracking with that? All right. Let's look at verse 27, 28. So the next set of verses in this genealogy. Now, these are the generations of Terah. So now we start narrowing it down even more to Terah, which we know that's where Abram comes from. Terah became the father of Abram, Naor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. And Haran died in the presence of Terah, his father, in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, let me make another comment here. You keep, we keep saying Ur of the Chaldeans. It wasn't Ur of the Chaldeans whenever Abraham was there, or Abram, who was still Abram. It was just Ur. The Chaldeans would come later, but remember, Moses is writing this as they're about, in, you know, he's looking back and telling the story of what happened. So that's how they would have known where he was talking about, or the Chaldeans. Now, remember, Terah wasn't a worshiper of God. We just, Joshua told us that in, in, um, earlier. He established that for us. But also some of the names do the same thing for us. From Babel, it's widely regarded that their major form of worship was where kind of astrology was introduced. They would look up at the stars and they would worship the stars and they would name the stars after, you know, make got names of gods and goddesses out of the star. I mean, think about even in ancient Egyptian culture, what's their main point of worship? Usually the sun god, the moon god, all that kind of stuff, right? That started at Babel. Now, it's widely, widely taught that that area that, Abram's father, family was from, were worshipers of the moon god. Archaeology and history both spell it out based on finds and everything else. <coughs> Hebrew scholars connect Terah's name to the Hebrew, na- Hebrew word Yaria, which means moon. So they literally say Terah's name meant moon. Terah was named by who? Probably his father, Nahor. So that probably tells you at least two generations back, that's probably the way they worshipped and that's the land they lived in, that's what they worshipped there. I mean, it all lines up, historically, archaeology. So we get, also we get introduced to Ur here. Now Ur is interesting because there's two different places people try to say Ur was. The most likely case is down near the Persian Gulf. They actually found a place there in 1922. They uncovered it and found out it was a tell. If y'all were here on the first study in um, when we looked at the, our trip to Israel, we talked about what a tail is, T-E-L, and that's these civilizations that are just built on top of each other. You go deep enough, you get to the base level of finding out who started this place. And 
everybody, humans leave stuff behind, right? And you find out these things. And they're pretty confident that's where it was, down near the Persian Gulf. And they found it in 1922. Archaeologists and historians agree this was the major area in the world for worship of the moon god in ancient Mesopotamia. Where was on your map two weeks ago when you were doing that genealogy? Yep. Is that where... There, it's right there. I, I didn't even look back at the map, to be honest with you, but I think it's down near the Persian Gulf on that map. There's another place further north that... that it's close to the king, um, north east of There's two, two different spots that point to it. One's down by the Persian Gulf, one's further northwest, I believe. Now, so we've established paganism worship there. Now, now, let's look at these other brothers a moment. I think this might help some more, too. Nahor was one of the other brothers. We already spoke to the fact that he was named after his grandfather. And we're going to learn later in Genesis and further on in Genesis, I think it's in Genesis 22 or somewhere, that Nahor had 12 sons. So these 12 sons, 12 sons and daughters, I'm sorry, these would have been the nephews and nieces of Abram, right? This was his brother's kids. The first son that he had, his name was Bethuel. Does that name ring a bell to anybody? Bethuel was the father of Rebekah. Rebekah was the wife of Isaac. So from his brother's line, Rebekah was born. And through Abram, Isaac was born, and they married. Second cousins. So that's not the worst thing we're going to read about here. <laughs> that's not the worst thing we're going to read about. And would be the mother of Jacob and Esau. So she's connected to that line. Haran's the older brother. Verse 27 points out, I'm sorry, the other brother, points out that he was the father of Lot. So why is it significant to throw lots? Like we know, looking back, why it's significant to mention Lot there. And in the chain of events, there's another reason Lot is mentioned there. We go further, Heron, he dies pretty quickly, right? Yeah. So what does that mean? The oldest son's going to do what? He assumes that role, responsibility, the patriarchal duties of the father as the oldest son. By, like as we said earlier, the, the inheritance and all that stuff. So he's mentioned here, his dad dies pretty quick after he's born. Now, yeah, there's a thought there that this is his brother's son. So Abraham would have probably, he would have taken, that's why they're so close. That's why they were so close. He lost his dad, and who happened to be his brother too. Yeah. So look at verse 28. And Haran died in the presence of Terah, his father, in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. So he died right there. When it says in the presence, the literal Hebrew says either face to face or at his face. So literally it's like Terah's there as his son dies. It's kind of the way that reads. And Lot assumed that, that role in that position out of necessity, really. Let's look at the, the, these last verses, 29 through 32. Abram and Naor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, 
there's a little bit of controversy here. If there's a period there, it would really cause more controversy. But there's not. There's a comma. The father of Milcah and the father of Iscah. And Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to go to the land of Canaan. And they came as far as Haran and settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, what it doesn't tell us there yet is what um, what we don't see there yet. After that, before they left Ur, God had appeared and spoke to Abraham. But we also know that He doesn't leave; He stays in Haran with His father and His family for a while too. That's not the first thing I want to point to. The first thing I want to point to is that some will say, "In the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran." Well, he took his brothers daughter, his niece. I, I saw a, a scholar that I respect a lot that tried to make that claim and said he was just doing it based on keeping the family line going or whatever, but there's a comma there that tells you who she is. It's a different heron. Because look what it says. The father of Milcah and the father of, daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and the father of Iscah. Her father was this person that's the father of her and the father of Iscah, her sister. It's a different heron. But there is confusion and debate there, but I think it tells us this is a different one because this is his children of these two girls. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that because I think it's pretty clear to me. But even though people I think a lot of will try to go the other route on it, I don't really get that. But anyway, and there's no mention of Lot, right? Her- Lot was Haran's son. He would have been mentioned again right there. The father of Milcah, the father of Ishka, the father of Lot. That's what the, and they, well, he'd have been listed first, actually. But he's not. I think that tells us it's another heron. The name of Milcah and Ishka point us again to pagan worship. Sarai's name does too, by the way. That they were worshiping, that they were pagans. Milcah means this, queen. But it's also the ancient Akkadian title for the goddess Ishtar. And her sister's name's Ishka, so it's pretty easy to draw that line. This goddess was the goddess of Venus, which... How, why would, how would they even know anything about Venus? Well, they wouldn't have known it was Venus, the planet, but how would they recognize it? It's the first star in the sky, right? This is the goddess we're going to worship. It's the goddess of this star, whoever this star is, and name their daughter after her. What's another name for that, the queen of Venus? You may know. In ancient texts especially, the queen of heaven. Queen of heaven. Venus is the queen of heaven. Because... The sky, the heavens, that kind of thing. Ishtar. Ishtar is a play on the name of that same goddess. So both his daughters naming them queen, naming them after this goddess in their mind. Now, you might think, that's all well and good, but let me read you something that's... We know that the children of Israel continually went back into idolatry and paganism so many times, right? There's a text in Jeremiah 7 that I want to take you to. I know that might take a minute to find, so you can write it down, or if you can get to it quick, tally-ho, but I'm only going to read one verse. Jeremiah seven eighteen. This happened in Jerusalem, what Jeremiah is telling us right here. The children gather wood, and the fathers make the fire burn, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods in order to provoke me, says the Lord. Quite a ways after all this. 
So it's back to verse 29. There's speculation that the word Easter comes from Ishtar. Yep. I mean, that's we're still doing it to a certain extent. Yep. Back at verse 29. Now, we know... I'm not going to talk about the name change for Abram. We'll get to that when we get to that. But there's significance to it, of course. The name Sariah means my princess, and it was usually pointing towards the queen of heaven again, too. When God changed the name to Sarah, what essentially what happens when you drop that I and change it to an H, it makes it takes it from my princess to princess. Big difference there because my princess is pointing to the princess of this queen of heaven or whatever. We'll, we'll talk about that more when we get to it. But in the ancient language, Sarah name is translated Sarat, S A R R A T, which is one of the goddesses of the Babylonian gods. All this paganism shortly after the flood, after Babel, after everything else. And this is from the line, the promised seed line, too. It's also was another name used for Ishtar, again, was this name, Sarat. Verse 30. Problem right here. And Sarai was barren. She had no child. Culturally, that's a big problem for a woman to be barren in those times. But we know the promise he's about to make to Abraham in, in Genesis 12, right, that you'll be the father of nations. Well, your wife can't, can't have kids. And she's old by that time, yeah. We'll get to that when we get to that next chapter, but it's worth mentioning here that even culturally she'd have been shunned and outcast, whatever. God does those things purposely, though. With man, with man it's impossible. With God, nothing's impossible. Mm-hmm. Verse 31. And Terah took Abram his son, Lot the son of Haran, his grandson Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to go to the land of Canaan. They came as far as Haran and settled there. Why leave? Terah wasn't told to leave. Other texts tell us that God, the God of glory had appeared to Abram and tell him, you're going to leave. But Terah didn't get that message. Terah was worshiping the moon god. Why did he pick up and take his family and move? That's, you're exactly right. It's a good thing. I wasn't going to talk about that, but since Diane brought it up, I will. The Euphrates River is kind of an obstacle there in that area too, right? It would have been easier for them to go up and around than it would have been to take this caravan of people the way that looks on a map to be the easiest way to go. But there's another reason for it. They had to end up in, they wound up in Haran too, which was part of God's providential plan as well. Now, Remember Acts 7 said God came to Abram while they were still in Ur. There's no reason for us to think that God told Terah to pick up your people and leave. Any other reason? The easiest answer, God's providence was guiding all this to begin with, right? and that is true. There's also some speculation by archaeologists when they found this tale and everything else that Ur probably ascended pretty quickly and started declining pretty quickly and it was time to get my people out of here. That's the human understanding of it. Ultimately, God was directing all this anyway. Terah's the one leading them out, and he was a pagan. The providence of God is at work right here in this text to accomplish his purposes with the pagan people. 
Genesis 15. This is close to covenant time here, but this is what God says. And he, God, said to him, Abram, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. So yeah, Terah physically was the one, but God's saying, I'm the one that guided and directed all of it. I'm the one that brought you out of there. But then they stop in Haran. Why did they stop in Haran? It says they were in order to go to the land of Canaan, right? It even sounds like that was Terah's purpose to go to Canaan, but they stopped in Haran and settled there. That's not like they just stopped there and Terah died. They stopped there and settled there. Why settle there if your plan is to go to Canaan? Is there sentimentality here because that's the name of his son that died? I don't think so. Archaeologists helps, archaeology helps us again here. Helps us with the why. History helps us with the why. Haran was the second largest place of worship in the moon god in the known world of that time. So a pagan who worshipped the moon god, left Ur for whatever reason left Ur, ultimately God was directing him, stops in Haran. Well, guess what happens when I get to Haran? They're worshipping the same God I worship. Things are familiar. This is comfortable, right? That's pretty good reason for him to stop there and stay there and settle there. Um. Glance at in chapter 12. Verse 1, Yahweh said to Abram, go forth from your land. Now, this is after Terah dies. Go forth from your land and from your kin and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. So God doesn't come to him again and tell him to leave until his father dies. He tells him to leave. And then verse 4, of course, Abram went forth as Yahweh had spoken and Lot went with him. When he departed from Haran. So the initial call was from Ur, but ultimately Haran is when he came to him again and said, go. Leave them all behind. Go. Terah died, verse 32 tells us, and was in Haran when he died. Remember this, 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 what Stephen says again in Acts 7. Let me read that again. The high priest said, are these things so? Verse 1, and he said, Hear me, brothers and sisters. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. He tells you there, before he went to Haran, God appeared to him in Ur and said to him, Leave your country, your relatives, and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. There's no discrepancy. It lines up perfectly with what the Genesis account tells us. From there, after his father died, God had him move to this country in which you are now living. Of course, we know, if you know the full story of that sermon, what he's saying to them as he's laying the blame with their feet, that your Messiah came and he goes all the way back to Abraham to point and say, this line came all the way through and here's the Messiah whom you killed. And he lays it all at the feet of the Hebrews there. And of course, we know what happened to him. Genealogies can be boring, but when you really start peeling onion back a little bit, they're not quite as boring as they always appear. Now, I know we skipped over talking about all those folks, but the point of this whole narrative is to get from Shem to Abram. 
that's the point of that genealogy. And to show you the consistency of God and to give you all those dates and times and everything to show the perfection of God's word and keeping all that stuff perfectly in order. But it's to get to Abram, which ultimately means to get to the Messiah into this promised line. When we get to next week, the whole, I shouldn't say it changes. Our focus goes from looking at things I don't know that we often ever at, our, at this church look at things from that 10,000-yard view, but we get down to, to, to really looking at some of these details about Abram and how God worked in Abram's life and eventually leads to Isaac and Jacob and um, all those things that happen between now and ultimately Joseph and Egypt and those things that lead to the Exodus. Any thoughts? No? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. What was in Moses' head when he was writing? I, I, I guess Abraham was the focus of the genealogy that Moses was recording, not Jesus. <laughs>